What does it mean to be wise? Who is the wisest person you know? I think most people tend to associate wisdom with knowledge and understanding. The wise man is the type of person who could win at Jeopardy. He's intelligent. Ancient Greece was a culture obsessed with wisdom, and their philosophers or wise men were characterized by their intellectual prowess. In fact, the word philosophy comes from the Greek, phileo, love, sophia, wisdom. It's a love of wisdom. It was out of this climate that many philosophies or worldviews emerged, which still hugely influence our world today. Some formulated cynicism and stoicism as a way to understand life. Life is about a pursuit of happiness, but it doesn't come the ordinary way by health and wealth and pleasure. Instead, happiness comes from controlling oneself and freeing oneself from all ties that bind. And so the philosopher Diogenes, for example, took a vow of poverty and didn't take part in any of the pleasures of society and was known for sleeping in a ceramic jar in the marketplace of Athens. Others turned to Epicureanism or Hedonism, And these philosophies taught that pleasure itself was the greatest good. The goal of life is to maximize pleasure while minimizing pain. Happiness comes by drinking to one's fill all the desires of your heart. Just give in to all your desires. Never deny yourself and try to avoid avoid as much pain as possible. Kind of sounds like today. Even more extreme, though, is nihilism. This philosophy teaches that nothing matters. There is no purpose or meaning or value to life. Life is utterly meaningless, and even morality is not real. It's just a construct of society. And famously, this led the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche to pronounce, God is dead. In a world without God, there's no meaning. So live as you please. Nothing matters anyway. There are a lot of philosophies out there and a lot of worldviews. So which one is right? Who should you listen to? All of these great philosophers were full of knowledge and understanding. Today, they would be professors, those with PhDs. They know so much more than you do, so how can you really say they're wrong? It's in this way many people are carried away today. They reason to themselves, you know, like, I'm I'm a pretty simple person. I'm not that smart. I don't have master's degrees or I don't have a PhD. But that person does, and he sounds like he really knows what he's talking about, so Now, how can I really say that he's wrong? He must be right. It's amazing how this phenomenon plays itself out so much today, especially on college campuses. Young people who don't really know better, they see their professors who appear so learned, so intelligent, so wise, and everything they say, therefore, is just swallowed unquestioned as truth. I mean, after all, these professors are way smarter than their parents. What do their parents really know? Some of their parents never even went to college. And so without thinking for themselves, they just eat up whatever this person in authority says. I'll tell you what, though. Our society has the wrong measuring stick of wisdom. How do most people measure wisdom? Or like I asked earlier, what does it mean to be wise? Most would answer just to be wise means you know lots of stuff. You're you're smart. You're intelligent. Intellectually, no one can spar with you. But that's the wrong answer. Granted, that's the world's measure of wisdom, but this is the wrong measure of wisdom. Instead, there is a better measuring stick of true wisdom, and it's not intelligence or knowledge, but rather 
behavior. Behavior. It's how a person's live or how a person lives. Does not a person's life speak louder than their words? I mean, you can espouse whatever philosophy you want, but let's look at your life. Let's, let's see how you live. Let's see what type of a life you live. Let's see if your life is flourishing. Because after all, what's the value of a philosophy or, or wisdom if it doesn't lead to a better life? I mean, should you really listen to a person and believe what he says, even if he appears really smart, if his life is wicked, corrupt, and immoral? I mean, does that sound like the fruit of true wisdom to you? And so it's not surprising to learn, for example, that Nietzsche, that German philosopher who said God is dead, lived a totally corrupt and depraved life, frequently visiting brothels, male and female, contracted STDs, died alone. Does does that sound like a better life to you? I mean, if that's the fruit of his wisdom, you you can keep it. That's the fruit of his philosophy. I mean, do you want that? For all of his learning and knowledge, does that sound like a better life to you? It's no wonder the Bible calls such people fools. That's not wisdom, that's folly. In fact, it's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. And it's the fool who seeks to live life and even understand life apart from God. That's not wisdom, that's just foolishness. And this morning, I want to challenge you to consider true wisdom, that you may not be the fool, but that instead you might be wise and that you might bear the fruit of wisdom. I don't think we should throw out philosophy. I love philosophy in the strict sense, a love of wisdom. Don't you love wisdom? You should love wisdom. You just need to make sure you're loving the right kind of wisdom, the wisdom from above, the wisdom that comes down from God himself. There is another type of wisdom, a wisdom from below, the wisdom of the world. And though it may come off as intellectual, It's revealed as bankrupt by the rotten fruit it produces. And if you listen to the wrong person and if you adopt such wisdom from below, you'd expect the same sad life of ruin and hardship and wickedness and eventually judgment. This is not the way of the wise. It's the way of the fool. And we instead want and need true wisdom from God to guide us through life. I want to understand life, what life is about, the meaning of life, how to live. That's what wisdom is supposed to teach us, and it comes from God. We need to learn about such wisdom this morning, and we're going to from James chapter 3. So you can open your Bibles now to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. We've been studying James For months now, and many liken the epistle of James to wisdom literature in the Bible. I'm talking Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Why is that? Well, James, like wisdom literature, is largely topical truth for right living. Topical truth for right living. That's wisdom literature. And that's a pretty fair estimation for James. He certainly does shuffle around his teaching topics quite a bit. I mean, already in the first three chapters, he's gone from trials to temptations to salvation to being doers of the word to true religion to the sin of partiality and then recently or faith and works and then recently to sins of the tongue. He's covered a lot of ground. 
And now here at the end of chapter 3, he's going to cover wisdom itself. But the one tie that binds together all these subjects in James is his audience. It's reasonable to say that he's writing about all these different subjects because he's trying to deal with issues among his original audience. And if you remember, James had essentially become the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem, the first church that at the very beginning he he was there. As the other apostles were scattered, James was always in Jerusalem. But after various dispersals and persecutions, many of that flock had just been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. So he was writing to these early Jewish Christians who had been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And he's helping them deal with certain issues that they're facing and dealing with and certain sins. And one big issue they were having was strife, quarrels, conflict. Sin divides people. And well, we're still sinners, so even Christians will at times suffer from division. This must be something we fight against, though. We must be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4.3. This is why James calls out the sin of partiality in chapter 2, and why he calls out the sins of the tongue in chapter 3. These sins were being used to tear down others and tear apart the body. And getting into chapter 4, these issues of personal conflict will take center stage, and he'll deal with them head on, you know, the source of personal conflict and, and what to do about it. But first, in between, James includes this little section on wisdom, James 3, 13 through 18. But it's not random, though, because here, James is going to advocate for the need for us to be filled with this wisdom from above. And that wisdom from above is what leads to what? Peace. Peace in life. Peace with God and peace with others. And true wisdom leads to peace in life, while worldly wisdom is what leads to disorder, disarray, division. And so James needs to challenge what these Christians are buying into, what kind of worldview they're accepting, what wisdom they're ingesting, because that's going to affect how they live. It's a source of a lot of their troubles and conflicts because they had been taking in a lot of the wisdom of the world, the spirit of the age. They're being served the wisdom of the world. Many of them are eating it right up, but it's causing a lot of food poisoning, you might say, and negative results. And so they instead need to feed on the pure wisdom of God, which will bring them peace. And so this is the gist of James's message to them here at the end of chapter three. And guess what? That message that need for wisdom from above and to avoid wisdom from below, it's, it's just as relevant. That, that has never changed. Sin still divides people today. Marriages, families, homes, churches, and you name it. Strife, conflict, disorder. These sins are still being spawned and so many of them are derived from the people buying into the wrong philosophy, the wrong wisdom, the wrong worldview. And when you order your life around the wisdom of the world, just forget about it. You're never going to know peace. 
true, lasting peace. But if you seek the Lord and his wisdom, and if you follow the Prince of Peace, that's what you're going to find. You're going to find real peace in life. And shouldn't that be the fruit of any wisdom? Peace? Well, that's what, that's what we're going to find in this passage. Let's read it now. James three thirteen through 18. You can listen along. James 3, verse 13. He says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be so arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We're going to go through this passage and see how James, he begins first and foremost with this rhetorical question through which he's going to establish the true standard of wisdom. So we'll begin simply with the standard of wisdom. The standard of wisdom. And look again at verse 13, where he asks, Who among you is wise and understanding? He's transitioning to the subject of wisdom. And so he asks rhetorically, who's wise? Who is the wise man or, or woman? Who's the real philosopher or lover of wisdom? Who among you has understanding? Most people think highly of themselves. that They don't think of themselves as a fool, but rather pretty smart or intelligent or, or wise. But James is going to put that to the test. And so what's the test? What is the measure or the standard of true wisdom? He says, it's not knowledge. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. So basically, like, are you wise? Well, show it. Prove it. By, by what measure? By your good behavior, your conduct, your actions, how you live your life. It's just like in chapter 2. You say you have faith in Christ? Okay, well, let's, let's see it. Can you prove it? Can you display that faith with how you live? And likewise, you, you say you have true wisdom. Well, let's see it. Show it. Show us the nature of your true wisdom by how you live, your, your good behavior. And more specifically, he says, wisdom is revealed by these deeds done in gentleness. And the word gentleness means meekness or humility. Meekness was not a virtue prized by the Greeks or the Romans. It was seen as weakness and servility. And for the philosopher, pride was a virtue, not humility. But Christ in the scriptures challenged that understanding for meekness. It's not weakness, but it's power under control. And that Christ himself who came and epitomized this meekness. He, he wielded all power, but it was under control. And he used that to serve others. Like it says in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. 
And this meekness, we're going to find later, it's the path to God's wisdom for us. Because such meekness involves a right view of God and self. And the unregenerate man has a wrong view of both. He's got a high view of self and a low view of God. He's the center of his own universe. He's living for self. He's basically his own God and everyone lives in his world and exists to serve him, to further his interests. And such an elevated sense of self-worth, self-importance, self-reliance. According to scripture, that's the height of folly. Because the one thing yourself can't do is save yourself. Rather, humility is akin to wisdom before God because humility leads to the door of salvation. A humble heart, that's like freshly tilled soil. It's just waiting for that, the seed of the gospel to be implanted and to take root. And didn't James say as much back in chapter 1, verse 21, where he told us, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. You need humility first. And this humility involves a low view of self. We recognize your condition. You are a sinner. You've sinned before God. You are guilty. You are justly condemned before him. It also involves a high view of God where you recognize he's supreme. He's righteous. He's true. He's holy. But it also comes with a recognition of Christ, God's son, who gave himself for us, who died for us on the cross, rose from the dead, that we might be forgiven of of all that sin and, and rise to new life. You see, only the humble recognize recognize all this and and then accept it and then follow Jesus. Only the meek and humble will will follow. And so this is the path to true wisdom. And those who are on this path, they're going to continue to walk in meekness and humility because they recognize they're merely the recipients of God's grace. And they didn't do anything or earn anything. Therefore, there's no boasting. There's no pride. They're not better than anyone else. There's level ground at the foot of the cross, and they're merely there by grace. And such an attitude of meekness, like I said, we'll learn more, but it's that attitude of meekness or humility that's going to bear the fruit of peace in life. You walk through life as a meek person. Again, that doesn't mean weak. It's a, a humility that's trusting in the Lord, and you're going to find that bearing fruit of peace with God, with others, all throughout life. And that, that we will find is the standard of true wisdom. Let's see a life of meekness and humility, and you'll find a wise person. But not all wisdom meets this standard, though. And the philosophy of the world is not like this. And so we find next, in the following verses, James is going to paint a contrast between two types of wisdom. The wisdom from above and the wisdom from below. And actually, with the remainder of our time, we're going to, this morning, focus solely on the wisdom from below. And we'll catch wisdom from above next time. Just because we want to we see it exposed for what it is. We want to understand this wisdom from below, what it's all about. That you might avoid it. That you might never buy into it or see it in your life. And so now from verses 14 through 16, James is going to give us three essential qualities of wisdom from below. 
three essential qualities of wisdom from below. Starting with number one, it's character. It's character, verse 14. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. You know, down in verse 15, James makes evident. He's talking about the wisdom from below, from the world. And so he starts, though, by revealing its character. And this worldly wisdom is characterized here by two things. He says, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. This word jealousy is being used in the negative. Speaking of, you know, envy, jealousy, anger. This is where you see what another person has and it angers you. It bothers you. Not because they have it, but because you don't. And often this turns into strife where you want to destroy what they have because if, if you can't have it, no one can. And that's why these two words, strife and jealousy, go together so often in the New Testament. And that's likely what James means here. He says this is a bitter jealousy. There's some bitterness here. It's like fruit that has spoiled so much, it's turned into a type of poison that harms yourself. It's been said that jealousy is like a poison that you drink hoping others will die. R. Kent Hughes tells a story of two men in a city, one envious, the other covetous. And the king sent for them. And he told the envious man he would he'd grant him basically one wish. He'd give him whatever he wants. The only catch is whatever he asks for, the other man is going to get exactly twice as much. And so this troubled the envious man because he wanted something great, but it really bothered him knowing the other guy was going to have twice as much of whatever he asked for. So he spent some time thinking about it, came back to the king, and he asked that he would have one of his eyes put out. And that's the product of jealousy. It's harm upon others and harm upon yourself. That's all that comes from this wisdom of the world. It's not a true story, by the way. That was just an illustration. <laughs> you guys took that way too seriously. No. Just well, anyway, this jealousy is in turn the product of the wisdom of the world. I mean, the world's wisdom is all about serving self. It's consumed with self and self-advancement. And so when you see someone in life who's advanced beyond yourself, it, it angers you. A type of hatred can breed or, or bitterness because they have what you don't. And has this bitter jealousy infiltrated your heart? When you look at someone with a better marriage, better kids, better house, better car, better clothes, better vacations, do you find a little part of you hating them in your heart? Or maybe is there some discontentment in your heart? That's not a godly discontentment. That's a purely worldly discontentment. And it comes from the wisdom of the world, which tells you, you have to have all those things to be happy, to be satisfied. And if you buy into that philosophy, well, you'll never be happy or satisfied because you'll never have it all. And so you'll just always be left with a form of bitter jealousy toward those who are more advanced than you. And things are much better with the second characteristic of worldly wisdom. He says selfish ambition. Of course, those who are living for themselves, per the wisdom of the world, they're going to be looking out for number one. And that just goes with the territory. 
At the end of the day, those in the world are mercenaries. They're living for self. And when push comes to shove, they're going to go with self-interest. You know, this term here in the Greek for selfish ambition. Would it surprise you if, if I told you that this word came to be used of politicians seeking office? Not surprising. Hasn't really changed. The politician. It's the perfect picture of the person trying to get ahead at all costs. Typically, not really to serve others, but to serve self, to be served. And their selfish ambition usually leaves a path of destruction as well. You know, Hurricane Michael just devastated parts of Florida. And historically, Republicans and Democrats have halted their nasty attack ads during an active hurricane for obvious reasons, not the time. But that changed this year where both sides continued to air these really nasty attack ads while the hurricane was like actively tearing apart Florida. It's just a small example of selfish ambition and its desire to get ahead no matter who it, it walks over. But it's not just politicians, though. It's just the way of the world, stepping on others to get ahead. And so you see what the wisdom of the world is all about. Fundamentally, it's all about self. And it's driven by pride, which is completely opposed to the exaltation of God and Christ. This has been the character of man's sin from the beginning, and it's alive and well in the world today. And so accordingly, it only makes sense to learn this wisdom comes with boasting. That's what this word arrogant means in verse 14. It's to put confidence in self so as to boast. Just think of like Nebuchadnezzar who thought, He was so mighty, so powerful. Look at this great kingdom that he had built. That's the wisdom of the world. And it's going to boast in itself and its accomplishments. From sports heroes to the president, the wisdom of the world is about boasting in self. And what James is saying here, though, is, look, we expect that in the world. But for a Christian to be like this. The Christian who's bought into this wisdom and now is similarly about self and boasting in self, they need to stop their boasting. And they're not wise. They're not understanding. They're playing the fool. They're revealing themselves to be the fool. And their self-centered character, he says, is a lie against the truth, meaning it betrays their faith. Just like the person who says he has faith but has no works is a phony so the person who says they're wise, but they're, they're full of pride, they're a phony as well. Or rather, they're a fool. This is the way of the world and the wisdom of the world. And it's completely opposite to the way of God and the wisdom of God. And again, it's not surprising, especially when you learn the true source of this wisdom. So secondly, now it's source. First, it's character. Secondly, it's source. Verse 15, he says, This wisdom is, that which come, is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. This wisdom we're talking about here, it, it doesn't come down from above. Meaning, it, this is not coming from God. This wisdom is not sanctioned by God. It's not endorsed by Christ. There's nothing godly about it. It's not light, but darkness. It's not... True, but false. It's not good, but evil. 
And that's because this wisdom surely comes from things below. And James qualifies what he's talking about here with these three, the threefold source of this wisdom from below. First, it is earthly, meaning of this world. And, and the world in Scripture, that, that term, the concept of the world, it's often used to describe this, the present evil age, the spirit of evil that pervades the world system and has since the fall. Just think of like those building the Tower of Babel. Man, since the fall, has been preoccupied with not seeking the honor of God's name, not seeking to spread and glorify God's name, but no, forget that. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build our own name. Let's magnify our name. That's the world. And nothing good comes from such a world. Listen to what the Apostle John had to say about this world in a well-known verse, First John 2, 15 through 17. He says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. For all that is in the world is not of the Father. Or rather, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He says, verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God will live forever. This world is dark. It's corrupt. It's only getting darker and corrupter. It's dominated by sin and it's passing away. This world is passing away and also it's less, just a matter of time. But that being said, what kind of a wisdom do you expect would come from such a world? Like, what do you think you're going to get by listening to this world? Do you really think the teaching of such a world, such a dark, corrupt, futile, passing away world, do you think their teaching is going to lead you to the truth? Or maybe lead you astray from the truth, like that's why they're perishing? And secondly, this wisdom is natural, meaning of the flesh. It's devoid of the Spirit of God. This wisdom is unspiritual. It's an unspiritual wisdom, and it's produced by unspiritual men. It's like Paul said over in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He said, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. For they are spiritually appraised. And earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul asked, and he said, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? See, to God, God's foolishness is still like way wiser than man's wisdom. And man in his darkened understanding is the one who thinks God's wisdom is actually foolishness. It's backwards. But the natural man He can't even grasp God's true wisdom. He's darkened in understanding. He's like a blind man in an art gallery or a deaf person at a symphony. He can't even apprehend what's right in front of him. And so again, we question like, what do you expect from such people? What kind of wisdom do you think they're going to give you? They don't see God. They don't see Christ. They don't see sin. They don't see salvation. And so you're going to go to them to understand how life works, what's the meaning of life, how to live, what life is all about. And you think you're going to get it right? 
They, they fundamentally deny their God and creator, so nothing is going to be right from them. And third, this wisdom is outright demonic. James says demonic, meaning of the devil. And is not the devil the ultimate originator of this worldly wisdom? Satan is the father of lies, and he's the one who, in fact, introduced folly to the world. Remember, it was Satan who promised Eve wisdom in his temptation. He said, now that fruit looks pretty good. And, and by it, you will be like God with the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve bought that lie, and she saw the fruit and said she believed that the fruit was desirable to make one wise. She saw it as desirable to make one wise. They already were wise because they had God's revelation and they were walking in it. But in this deception, Eve did not find true wisdom. She only found the wisdom from below and, and its result, death. And ever since, that's all that's come out of the wisdom from below. This is why Satan is also called a murderer from the beginning. For through his wisdom, he spawned death, separation from God and goodness. And that's been the steady result. And if you buy into that philosophy, the one that says, ignore what God has said and just, you know, go your own way. Do what's right for you. You're just going to find death in all of its byproducts, like anger, hatred, malice, lawsuits, betrayal, adultery, divorce, abandonment, abortion, murder, greed, lies. The list goes on and on. It's all the product of the wisdom of the world and the spirit of the age that is still working in the sons of disobedience. And so, again, does this sound like true wisdom to you? I hope not, especially after James finishes by further detailing the fruit of such wisdom. And so thirdly, we find it's fruit. These three characteristics of this wisdom from below, it's, it's character, it's source, and now it's fruit. What comes from it? And James says in verse 16, he says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, meaning, you know, where the wisdom from below reigns, he says, there is disorder and every evil thing, disorder and every evil thing. These two basic results. First, disorder, meaning instability. Just like the tongue was a restless evil, same word. So this wisdom from below, it's a restless evil. It leads to instability. Things just break. They get turned upside down when this wisdom reigns. They're out of order. It's like a football team's got 11 guys. They're supposed to work together as one. Imagine if each of the 11 guys was doing whatever he wanted, totally independent of one another. It'd be total chaos. Couldn't run a single play. That's the type of disorder we're talking about, but on much more serious terms, like in life, disorder, things don't work. It's not surprising, again, when you have people subscribing to the philosophy that says, life is about you. And when they're characterized by jealousy and selfish ambition, are you surprised that disorder is the result? Everyone's looking out for themselves. And so, of course, that's going to result in division and disarray and disorder. And the second result now is even worse. 
James says this wisdom results in every evil thing. Gets pretty general here and just kind of dumps it. Every evil thing. It's like he takes a basket of rotten, putrid fruit and just dumps the whole thing out at your feet and says, this is what the wisdom of the world gets you. It's every evil thing, a world of evil. A whole host of evil has come from this wisdom from below. When selfishness reigns, which is the heart of the world's wisdom, well, evil reigns. And if this wisdom were ever to infiltrate the church, that's like wolves being let loose in a sheep pen. It's going to devour from the inside. I mean, can you imagine if this, this type of wisdom and thinking and selfishness made its way into the church, you know, where people came to the church only concerned with themselves and what they wanted. I mean, can you imagine that? Like, they only want the music that suits them and the sermon length that suits them and the dress that suits them and the programs that suit them. And things must be done to their liking or else. And if you could just imagine a whole church filled with people like that, And just forget about it. That thing will divide before it even starts. In such disorder, it's the fruit of worldly wisdom. In fact, speaking of the church here, I want to help you understand the impact of this worldly wisdom upon the church because it has infiltrated the church for quite some time. And a practical level, show you what it looks like in the church. Let me give you the, in my estimation, that the number one way the wisdom of the world has infiltrated the church and then borne its rotten fruit. In my estimation, it's the acceptance of secular psychology into the church and all that goes with it. Even in a Christianized form, the very foundation of the psychology of the world is bankrupt. You go from Darwin to Freud and then on, And the world's wise men, this is the new generation of wise men, they they figured it out. They've cracked the code. They have discovered the the meaning of life, the source of life. They're wise, they're understanding. They have degrees. And these wise men have, have learned, oh, there's no God. Man is originated by time and chance. Man is nothing more than a highly evolved social animal. And therefore not really responsible for his actions you know, religion, that, that simply evolved from man's need for like a father figure presence. You have to realize a, a truly godless anthropology is at the foundation of the world's philosophy or psychology. And in their estimation, man's not bad. And man is not to blame for his problems. We're merely the byproduct of our circumstances. So you got trouble in life, it's not your fault. You didn't do anything. To blame is, well, your family, your parents, your upbringing, your culture, your genetics. You're just repressed and oppressed, and that's why you have all your problems. Now, granted, we don't deny the shaping power of of influences, but to them, man's inherent responsibility for his actions is denied. And so what's the prognosis of such wisdom? Well, since you're not really to blame and sin is not really a thing or a problem, like sin against a holy God is not really a factor here. Well, solutions just involve finding ways to change your circumstances to make you happy. You know, you committed to marriage, but your spouse just doesn't make you happy anymore. 
you should be happy. That's, you need to be happy. So just get a divorce. Problem solved. No questions asked. Or you're depressed. You feel empty all the time. Well, it's just your brain. You just pop some pills. If they don't work, we'll try some others. Just, just get on the pills. That's, all, that's the only hope you have. You know, the fruit of this is just brokenness. You got a bunch of broken people trying to deal with a broken world. And their only ultimate hope is the gospel. The good news of Christ and what God can do to save them and change them and help their real problems and give them peace. There is hope in Christ. But they're sold the lie and they've bought the lie that the answer is just more self. The answer to their problems is more self. Self-actualization, self-empowerment, self-awareness, self-esteem. They just need more self and they'll be happy. You know what the Bible says about this? 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, I'll, I'll read it for you. It says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant. He goes on to say, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power, avoid such men as these. Avoid them. And avoid their teaching, avoid their philosophy, avoid their psychology. That's what you need to do. But you know what? In recent days, that has not happened. Many in the church have welcomed this philosophy, or in modern terms, psychology, into the church. Because after all, like these guys are PhDs. They went to that school. It seems like they know what they're talking about. They've cracked how humans work. We can't really trust the Bible, right? And so what happens, you've got many pastors who, maybe they're well-meaning, but they don't really know better. And so they just defer to the experts. Like, you know, you're having trouble, you need help. Maybe you go to your pastor. But when he learns you need a little bit more than a prayer and a pat on the back, that your problems are out of his league, he will refer you to the specialists. Now let's have you go to this marriage counselor across town He's going to help you just kind of unpack your childhood repression and find out why you're having all these problems. Or your kids are out of control. Let me refer you to this shrink. She's going to do a great job of building their self-image and self-esteem as if they're not uncontrollably selfish already. But do you see the fundamental problem with this and what this reveals? Especially when it comes from pastors, it's nothing more than an admission that the gospel is not enough. The gospel is not really good enough. It can't really change you and transform you like it promises. It can't actually do that. You know, the Bible says God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That's not really true. It, it doesn't. It can't actually help. That issue, that's, it can't really help you there. Instead, though, the world can help you. They, they figured it out. That they, with psychology, they figured how the brain works, and they, they can actually help you more. So you should submit to their wisdom. Talk about a lie against the truth, like James would say. And it doesn't work. The fruit of this worldly wisdom in modern forms, has society gotten better under the helm of this leadership? I would say vastly worse. The divorce rate is through the roof. No one's happier. Abortion is unlimited, but it's leaving profound scars on people. And then, like I said before, don't really get started on the pill-popping epidemic. 
mental health is in crisis mode, and the only solution experts have is, let's slap a label on you and give you pills and just keep trying. To me, that's hopeless, that you have no hope but these pills that don't really work, and it's all trial and error anyway. But no one is made better. Things are spinning out of control. This is the fruit of wisdom from below, and it will only continue and get worse. But this is not the way. This is not the path to understanding, the path to peace, the path to life. And thankfully, there is a better way. There's some good news here that there's a better alternative, that there's, there's another wisdom, a wisdom from above, a wisdom from God. God has not left us without answers. He knows us. He made us. If you want to know how humans work, if you want to understand the human condition, maybe go to the creator, the one who made us and knows us, sin and all. And he's provided all the truth we need. And so you must go to him for the treasures of true wisdom. And we're going to do that next time, seeking to learn more about wisdom from above. Wisdom from above. For now, though, you need to beware wisdom from below. And take heed to James's expose of the world's wisdom. See it for what it is. And then identify the, the various ways it infiltrates your household, like through the TV, through the music you listen to, through what your kids bring home from school. It's everywhere. It's really the atmosphere we breathe. And so you have to be all the more aware and on guard that you may not be caught just breathing it in unquestioned. Do not be deceived or misled. It makes me recall what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, 2-4. He said to them, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. That's a godly type of jealousy. He says, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. And he goes on. But his point is, look, even back then, there's a lot of teachings out there, a lot of different philosophies, wisdoms, spirits, so to speak. And they all claim to be true, but do not be deceived all over again, because their fruit is not desirable to make one wise. Instead, you need to behold Christ, who became to us wisdom from above. In Christ is found life and peace and real hope and even change, power to change your life. You might think, but with so much of the world's wisdom around us, it's like our very environment. How can we hope to stay pure, like Paul says? We have to realize the battle is for your mind. And so he says, don't let your mind be taken away. Be led astray from the simplicity and devotion, or rather simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. It's rather simple. There's a purity found in just a childlike devotion to Christ, a daily devotion to Christ. 
stay close to him, follow him, know him. And as we'll learn next week, fill your mind instead with his word and his wisdom. And by this, by wisdom from above, God will guide you and and guard you and bring to you a life of peace. You must follow Christ who is wisdom. Until next time, let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your word. For in it, you've revealed yourself, your son. You've revealed us, cutting us open, laying bare how we tick. And you've revealed salvation, how we can be saved and even renewed and changed. Your word is truth and wisdom. And in it, that people can change overnight from, from problems our world is clueless to help. I pray, Lord, this morning you build our faith. That's what's at stake here. That's what's needed. The the world is full of pressure uh, to submit to their ways and their wisdom. It's dominated by self, and it claims to have the answers, but we're living the the effects of that. We're seeing the fruit it bears, and it's, it's not pretty. I pray those here this morning are not so deceived that in meekness and humility, they would recognize just the folly of the world. The world is just passing away, and nothing good comes from it spiritually. May they turn to Christ and find in him incarnate wisdom from above and in his teaching, his word left behind. You have given us by your divine power everything we need for life and for godliness. May we be convicted to turn to you, to not be led astray. There is deception and temptation and uh, we can easily be led astray. May we always be on guard in our mind, filling it with your truth because we want to be wise, Lord. We don't want to be the fool or play the fool. We want that life of peace and blessing. It only comes from above, and so we must subscribe to the wisdom from above. And we pray you fill us with that daily. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.